Hello there, listener. How are you doing? It's Georgie Codd here, and I am presenting the latest in the Bookbound podcast series. This conversation today is what's the word? There are so many words. I think I'll go with eventful. This is an eventful chat that we hosted live during the Bookbound 2020 Festival Week. It's between the authors based in the UK, Max Porter and Will Harris. Max Porter known for Lanny and Grief is a Thing with Feathers. Will Harris for his latest collection, Rendang, it's a poetry collection. Their host is the poet Jamie Trower, who's based in New Zealand. So the three of them are crossing continents by video call during this one. Now, the joys of the video call mean that one of the first major events in this conversation is the disappearance of Will Harris. <laughs> Moments after going live, he he vanished. So Jamie and Max are chatting together, hoping that he will return. He will return, I promise. In the meantime, Max has just shown Jamie his a couple of photos from his little collection of tiny model naked men that he's been making. <laughs> Honestly, so, oh yeah, eventful. I say, I say it again. This is an eventful chat. If you want to hear Max Porter spontaneously singing, if you want to hear some some writers taking the piss out of each other, if you want to hear some fascinating insight into process publishing, poetry, and what these authors think of where they are and how that feeds into their work, keep listening. You are in for a treat. Now, I'll pass over to Jamie, who is going to our live audience. So we actually um, have got some some questions coming in from from the audience already. Is it, is it where's Will? <laughs> well, it should be because I'm I'm starting to get a bit worried. <laughs> um, so the the question uh, is: uh, Does writing come naturally, or do you struggle to put pen on paper? Oh, uh, that's a nice question. Um, I don't. What well, I mean, I I yeah, it does. I mean, I what I don't struggle to do is put pen to paper, literally. Um, so if if I'm stuck, I will always physically take a pen and put it on paper. So I'm very much a user of notebooks. I have endless hundreds of notebooks lying around and I and anywhere in between a sketch or a doodle, a doodle and a note or a, or a drawing. Um, so that is sort of an idea storehouse for me. Um, mm. Do I ever struggle to sit down and do the work? Uh, yes, I mean I'm relatively new to this. I've only been a professional writer now for for the year for, for the year that my previous book came out. Before that, I I was an editor, and before that, a bookseller. So, the idea that this is now my occupation and how I might put food on the table um, is is relatively new to me. And yeah, I do struggle with the idea that I ought to sit down and and write. Um, mm. Every day, I'm yet to kind of take myself seriously as a writer in the, in the in a kind of domestic sense, you know, I almost feel a tiny bit embarrassed saying, I'm right, you guys, I've got to go off and do, do some work when that work <laughs> involves creativity or, or even thinking yeah. for a bit of time and not doing any actual work. So I have a kind of work ethic from having been, I'm quite a hard working person and I'm, I'm slightly, uh, I need to have multiple projects on the go. 
Um, so mm. when I can't actually write um, or, or don't feel I should be writing, I, I'm doing a lot of collaborations because that allows me to be in other people's practice, other people's mindset. I'm working with lots of musicians, uh, some artists, a graphic novelist, various people whose work I, I admire, um, just so that I can stay busy and have multiple projects on the go. So as not to heap a great deal of pressure on, on the main on the main thing. I think nothing good comes of writers sitting in front of their computers, terrified, self-absorbed, you know, <laughs> thinking of literature only as a product. One, you've one's got to be out in the world listening and spending time with human beings. And, you know, ultimately, and lockdown's really brought this home. Um, ultimately, my first responsibility is as a, is as a caregiver to my children. So um, if I don't write very much in these five weeks, but they're okay, then I think it will be all right. Would you say that you have like any, any uh, usual like rituals in your, in your writing? I just have to uh, kill a baby rabbit and drink oh, the blood oh and then I'm good to go usually <laughs> yeah it's all like <laughs> you all stand around in the circle chanting yeah. like... nothing more elaborate than that really Jamie no <laughs> yeah no I, I have a I'm quite I'm I am quite a, um, a ritualistic or, or I'm a creature of habit in terms of cre the, cre the creative undertaking so I would I like to listen to music while I'm thinking. I like to have a blank piece of paper. So if I get stuck, I can draw. Um, but beyond that, no, I'm not particularly precious. I mean, I, I'll write anywhere. I, my first book was written in email drafts and saved text messages and on bits of paper. Um, hey. Hey, Will's back. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, my internet just inexplicably completely cut out the moment we were starting. Oh no. <laughs> I think Virgin Media have been having like outages all day. No. One of many reasons why they should be public. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well we're glad you're back, mate. <laughs> so what have what have I what have I missed? Um well, we were just uh, talking about like how lockdown's been have we been reading anything interesting, writing anything interesting? How's, how's lockdown been for you? Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's been kind of mixed. It, it changes day by day. I've been recently trying to get into a new routine um, mm. to try and kind of normalize it of getting up early and reading, and doing some physical exercise, then getting back and trying to, yeah, trying to, like forcibly spend time away from my laptop has been hmm. a difficult thing Been kind of chained to the news. And obviously it's the only way of seeing people now, which is kind of depressing. Um, I'm starting a, a course next week. I'm, I'm teaching on this book called Poetic Artifice by Veronica, Veronica Forrest Thompson. So this is a book I've been reading recently, which I'd recommend. Hmm. Written in the mid seventies. She was this amazing um, precocious poet and academic who died when she was in her, I think, mid, late, yeah, late 20s. And this was published posthumously. And it's an incredibly good book in terms of understanding how to read poetry and especially how to read difficult poetry. Um, so that's been, it's been getting me through in preparing this course. I think the expectation that I'm going to be 
engaging with real people has been quite an exciting part of it. What, no. have, what, you, what have you guys been doing? What, did, what were you talking about? Basically, we were just like talking about lockdown. So, um, that, that actually, would you say that you have a have a ritual when it comes to writing? Like, do you have to, I don't know, write write during the day? You can only write during the day or during the night, or. Mm. Um, I usually write very early in the morning, but I don't really have a ritual. I never had a ritual before. I, I before I, I used to just fit it in between things, but I think because I now have this this kind of open sea of time, I've had to enforce a ritual on myself to just in order to get things done. Mm. Um, what about, about you, Jamie? What's your yeah. right? What's your writing practice? Um, I I'm I'm mostly mostly nighttime nighttime writer. I I I've always been a nighttime person. Um, so yeah, I- Night time I, is the right time. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, I, I definitely, yeah. Uh, so like the days, the days ended, I can now sort of uh, declutter all of its events on, on paper. So yeah, night time, usually with a cup of tea, um, you know, nice Earl Grey. But yeah, no, nothing, nothing too, too manic. <laughs> I don't go go killing animals like like Max apparently does. <laughs> that's that's what you do for your inspiration, Max. Yeah, <laughs> Not as part of my writing ritual. Oh, like, I said I, I answered it quite literally. I have a set of elaborate. <laughs> shamanistic <laughs> rituals I enact in order to get the in order to get the work done. Yeah. To get the good stuff. Mm. <laughs> That's yeah. well cool. when, when you're writing poetry, do you have a different working method to when you'd be writing essays or academic work? Um well I guess when I'm writing um essays or prose I'm working from notes and um, notes I've made from reading, and so that's a that's the main the main thing. Or mo most of the work for that is making notes. It's it's more like a kind of accretive um, process. Whereas when I write poems, I just kind of set aside a little chunk of time and kind of mainly free write, or I edit what I've written before. Um, but yeah, no. It's what about what about with you? I tend to, um, it's like a smash and grab situation. I get, I, I do whatever I can whenever I, whenever I get the time. I tend to avoid actually having any, any wide open space and calling it writing time. I, I, I'm much better and it's much more generative for me to, to think, oh, quickly run, run and rub, write that down. And then I tend to start with a line or a drawing and then build up from that. So I never write great swathes of prose. I, I collage my way towards things of length. Um, mm. But that would probably reflect the slightly uneasy position I occupy as a writer anyway. It still feels like somewhere in between music, art making, mark making, you know, I, I certainly come at it from that side of things or even so, or, yeah, song, songwriting, I suppose. 
Um, I certainly come at it from there rather than a, the more mathematical or architectural position I know some writers come from. How do you go from the drawing to the the, the prose? Because I, I I think I heard I heard you say that about Lanny that it began with a lot of a lot of drawings. Well, sometimes they'd be explicit diagrammatic things, you know, three body, you know, the map of three bodies in a place, or um, I mean, even like I mean with Lanny, endless drawings of trees, but you know, something like a, a the bird's eye view of a of a place, mm. thinking, trying to think in in non-human or, or um different ways about what a place is and to the people that are in it um so just sort of trying to loosen up my thinking about something like the idea of place or the relationship between the human and the non-human and that might be better done just doodling just because that that's a, that's the way i can think mm. and then but the other probably the more productive thing is back the other way when i'm writing and i'm finding that the, the prose is sort of heavy with cliche or familiarity, then I would then stop and draw even, you know, say the, the relationship between two physical bodies, musculature um, or, or, or architectural space, floor plan, anything like that, just to help me think about, just to sort of test the validity of, of, the, of the work against it really. Is this the right way to describe a scene? Would it be better from somewhere, someone else or somewhere else or those sorts of things? So I can keep that kind of energy one has between the brain and the hand when one's drawing in the prose itself. That's so true. Perhaps it won't always be applicable. I mean, if I start to write a biography of Trotsky, I doubt I'd do much drawing. Um, <laughs> but with, with the kind of fiction I'm writing, I find it helpful. It really, your your prose often really reminds me of John Berger, and it, and also the way you're describing the writing process. Um, I was reading a book of his uh, from the late nineties called Photocopies last night, yeah. which and and he described the writing process of it as being he began with these series of images in his head, and he imagined the text kind of laying out like a series of photocopies, and each of them are kind of like little sketches of people who enter his life briefly. Um, and they have, and he also has this, yeah, this incredible lucidity, which I think you can, you can kind of tell that he's, he's approached it like a draftsman. He's like sat down, written it by hand, uh, edited it by hand. I think I often have this worry that because I'm so tied up with my computer and the way I edit, like sometimes if I edit, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll put it into a different format, like into an email or into a note. And then and that's my way of working on it. So I feel mm. like I'm kind of, Me mechanizing myself even more um but if you were to get more 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 physical friction or or, or whatever it is in into the work what do you think the result would be yeah i i don't know i think it i i would have to loosen up a lot more yeah because the way i write now is it's it's very kind of like tweaking each word, thinking about, you know, being able to move the words around on the page is really important to my process. And obviously when you're writing by hand, you can't do that. You have to commit to what yeah. you put down, every mark you make. This has been one of my preoccupations recently because I've been researching hagiography and, and I was thinking about the gesture and the sort of the gesture economy within the work itself and, and what, would, what would it be to achieve a kind of painterly prose and and who, is, who has done that? I mean, Burgess is a really good example of someone who I think was able to use language in a very exacting way, but sometimes with a huge gestural energy, sort of almost con almost like contemporary dance. They were great, they were great rhythmic and um, 
musical sort of um, uh, the dynamism inherent in the prose. Mm. Um, but that that came maybe from what he was writing about as much as his method. Um, but I do like to, the the book I was recently working on, but I think I may now discard was an attempt to tr try and create um, uh, a kind of more more like a weaving, um, where there would be vertical, there would be warp and weft, and there'd be a wave where you pull one, you pull one thing, and it would all unravel. Um, I guess I guess that comes from reading books like Ark. I've been obsessing with. Uh, Ronald Johnson, Zakoski, and people like that, and thinking about what does a book-length poem achieve that a novel might not, or or even the great, you know, things like the Russian novels, or just before when you when you went off for your wee break and blamed Richard Branson, we were talking a bit about Virginia Woolf. Oh, yeah. and I've just read to the Lighthouse, and I think of that almost as a kind of psychic tapestry, whereby every you know that every gesture at the beginning, like I say, like the kind of pentamenti and paterly terms at the beginning, might be connected to a thing two hundred pages later. Mm. Um, Jamie, do you have do you do you draw or paint or anything like that in your practice? Um, I used to, but I I had sort of uh, not pushed myself into a corner. I've sort of resigned myself to the fact that I'm not good. Uh, like at, at either doodling, my doodling comes off, comes off horribly. Um, <laughs> so I. And I don't, I don't particularly like transfer from things to writing. It, it just, just comes out as writing. Um, but yeah, you probably have a better attention span than me. Maybe that's it. I just can't focus <laughs> on anything for longer than five minutes before I need to do something else. <laughs> um, I, I. I'll I'll start asking a couple of questions, and I'll also keep an eye on um, the audience questions as well. Um, so I'm going to start a question off um, with a quote, actually, um, from the Vietnamese American poet Ocean Vuong, who is fantastic, and you guys have to check him out if you haven't checked him out already. Um, in his debut novel entitled On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, Vong thanks a colleague in the acknowledgement section and goes on to say the rules are merely tendencies, not truths, and genre bounds are only as real as our imaginations are small. After reading that, I feel as writers we challenge the concepts of the perfected text how the word in whatever form can be received then as being beautiful, provoking, dangerous, even scary, like the paras parasitic puppet tooth wart in Lanny. <clears throat> and I suppose maybe even a bit sexy if we're breaking all the rules. With your latest works, what rules did you follow and what boundaries did you break? After you, Will. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, what rules did I break? <laughs> I, well, maybe a big thing for me was working with uh, Rachel Allen, the poet, who was my editor. She was really good in encouraging me to, uh, to think of the page as a kind of a field and moving text around on it, kind of breaking the 
kind of tyranny of the left mar left hand margin, and also uh, recombining combining poems, breaking apart poems, combining them, turning them into sequences. That was a yeah, as illustrated mm -hmm. by my assistant. Uh, that that was quite a kind of taboo breaking thing, or like a personal taboo breaking thing. I think with boundaries, I kind of see it more in personal terms. Yeah, I guess putting an image in. I mean, that's not really, no, the thing is everyone has done what yeah. you imagine is boundary pushing at some point before. Um, mm. All that really matters is whether you, it's useful to you or whether you're, it's part of you, whether you're pushing some internal boundary. Like, um, so for me, breaking up a poem and recombining it with another one was kind of, I was doing that was about, not about the kind of like act of breaking, but about the act of discovering something new in the process of doing it. Um, what about you, Max? Well, one of the things I like about your book is that you don't do those, there is, they're not gimmicks. You're not doing those things to ramp up any idea of the author's cleverness. They're, they're um, integral to the function of the collection as a whole and what it is you're trying to say about what's come before and the literary traditions that you're speaking to and the personal or, or psychic things, political things that you're trying to interrogate in the work. They relate to that effort. Um, and I guess I'd say the same with Lanny. I was thinking very much about the novel. What do we do with the novel? Or sort of in theatrical terms, really, you know, when, uh, what, what are we expecting of our, of our readers? To what extent is it a collaborative enterprise? Um, if I therefore ask certain questions of my reader in part one, would I then be able to try what appears to be like, for example, a modernist strategy of removing all the characters' names and, or, or something from you borrowing the techniques of, of magic realism or children's books or, or even poetry. Um, am I doing that to appear to, to, as, as the writer to be clever or, um, or to even seem experimental, to kind of pitch the book in, a, in an experimental space? No, I'm doing it for the, for the aims that the book has, which are integral um, and part of the book's storytelling ambitions um as well as its aesthetic ambitions so yeah doing I, I think um i guess breaking the rules for the right reasons um yeah. and, and and i totally agree with you will that those decisions tended to be made best by me when it was actually in, in collaboration with my editors who were very very generous and insightful about when i was when i was doing those things for the right reasons i.e for the book's reasons and not for my own um, I mean, I had I had an experimental device in the book that ended up not being in it, and I think it was some of the best writing I'd done uh, on the, on this subject. It was it was the father figure in Lanny, so it was on the subject of masculinity, um, sort of late capitalist masculinity um, in the developed world, and um, and they quite rightly pointed out that it didn't belong in the book. Um, it was an experiment that didn't relate to what the books, uh, you know, to the, to the sort of centrifugally to the books. Um, coherence as a as a work of art. So um, it's so important to be edited and to hear your editors and and to be reminded by your editors who work with multiple different books across any given period what um, what the possibilities are um, yeah. in the form that you've chosen. I mean, Rachel, you know, as you say, you know, having images, having typographical play, and as you say, none of it's new. 
there was a bit of there was a dear sort of sense with with dead puppet tooth what's language in land the stuff he overhears dancing across the page and like a couple of graphic designer friends of mine were like God, as if that's new and I was like, I never claimed it was new. I just, it's the thing that I wanted to do in Lanny to create this sense of a polyphonic voyeurism of, of sound on the page. But yeah, of course, these techniques have been played around with for hundreds of years. Ever since people invented the printing press, we've been playing around with what you can do with it. I've, in fact, I've found this incredible thing on, um, in, in an 1891 copy of The Guardian, the complete Guardian from 1891, which someone gave me. And in those days, if you wanted to buy advertising space, you just pay by the line. So you just buy a block of, you just buy a block of space, but you still have, you still only have the tools at your disposal that they do in the setting of the text. So you have to do things like say, you know, Will Harris hair wax, Will Harris hair wax, Will Harris hair wax, Will Harris hair wax. And obviously they got quite good at doing little concrete, you know, so in the shape of a moustache or a head. It's brilliant. Uh, so yeah, there's nothing new under the sun, but there there are there are new juxtapositions, and then are, there are new uh, movements between things, and there are new ways of engaging your readership, and the readership is always changing, and every reader is different in infinite and unknowable ways. So I think there is always the spirit of play available to you when you make any decision. Um. Uh, the next uh, question is for is for Will. Um, oh, what do you think about being called a London poet? Is that something that you um, ever aimed for or imagined? Um, I guess I've always lived in London, so it's it's pretty it's kind of factually accurate. I don't know how many people have, have, call, have called me that, but I guess it became a useful thing when I was thinking about the book, uh, situating, it in terms of, situating in terms of London became an important device, like uh, including lots of details of streets, of shops, of places. Um, and so I guess inadvertently it has become a, a, London, a London book. But I was, thinking, I was thinking about this beforehand. Well I've, well, I've been thinking about London quite a lot, having been like on lockdown here and not you know, being able to leave the kind of 100 square meters of my house or surrounding area. Um, that there's this weird sense in London is like a non-place. It's like, it's defined by its anonymity. It is, but also by its like hyper-locality. Um, and so it feels weird to say that you're from London because London to me doesn't have a coherent identity. And that's one of the things I like about it. Um, and that's really come out during the, during the lockdown. There's like, yeah, I don't know. What do you, do you, where do you, where did you grow up? Was it, are you from, is it from, are you from Auckland? Is that, yeah, so I was born in the UK and oh. then I moved over to, uh, New Zealand and yeah I've, I've been living in living in New Zealand a lot my whole life um but yeah it's it, it is I, I think a geographical location really um sort of uh plays into into a into a, a writer's language because they are um 
they're surrounded by it. And like even even like down here in New Zealand, you have the you have the quirky little sayings and the quirky little um uh like bro cuz all these all these things you hear now and again and they do sort of come across in the in the world the same the same way as it would be in any part of the world really mm. yeah what what do, what what do you think max um what what would your what's your relationship like with with london uh, well, I moved out of London uh, three years ago. I lived in South London for about 20 years and um, 15, 20 years. I went to university in London. My family live in and around London. I, and I felt, London, you know, I felt like a Londoner. I certainly, and I certainly was guilty of uh, London-centric thinking um, when, when I sort of interrogated for myself what that might mean, both as a, both as a publisher and a, kind of imbiber of culture I, I was often realized how guilty I was of thinking of London as the center of the universe and I'm pleased to say I think that's lessened um, having moved out uh, down to the southwest to be near a family and just to sort of um, have a bit more space for my kids and stuff I, I think about London now as a thing that doesn't that ca cannot be said to have any one identity as Will was saying but is defined for me by the freedom and um in a way that like perversely given the size of it the smallness of one's existence in london because one stays in one's own bit of it um so i i sort of I, i'm quite fascinated with the with, for example culturally even what one doesn't do in london because there's too much to do in london um and those sorts of things and i have to sort of ask myself what it is i miss about london and there are various things aspects of multicultural big big you know conurbation life that i that i miss um but i don't want to hold those things i can't blame the city i i now live in for not having such a diverse population or not having good jerk chicken or not having you know loud music or youth that would rob me um they're different places um so it's made me think that the idea of a of a london is always a self-defined thing anyway um and I now in lockdown, not able to go to London. I used to go to London regularly for work. I, I now, like many people, I'm guilty of, of just enormous romanticization of the idea of the place. I would love to just walk down through Soho, across Waterloo Bridge. I'd love to walk down the South Bank. I'd love to go out in the East End and get pissed up with my friends. I, you know, it, I miss um, London as from a kind of uh nostalgic point of view fully aware of the dangers of such thinking hmm. Hmm. i liked your book will the, the 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 kind of notes to self of of a, of a, of of being swept up in a kind of um like almost a kind of faux romanticism for the sake of it with london street names and stuff hmm. um as if one is almost i mean that's sort of what a poem is anyway isn't it it's a kind of um map of one's subconscious but the way that one peppers it with topographical details in order to sort of celebrate the thereness of it like in yeah. quite a joyous way do you feel like that's the thing you would do in your poems or is it is it is it is there a different intent yeah i <laughs> maybe i i guess when i think of the new york poets people like uh, frank o'hara and 
Ashbury and Skylar and the way they use place names. And New York seems like an obviously romantic place in the way that for me, because I've always lived here, London isn't. And when they drop place names, which I, you know, mean nothing to me, it seems incredibly romantic. So I like the idea of using, you know, like 54th Street using Goldhawk Road and yeah. like Uxbridge Road or whatever. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a strange one. My, um, my dad worked on Portobello Road. Uh, he was an antiques dealer there. And I remember when Notting Hill came out and the way that that completely changed. And I mean, there was, that, that, that area was already changing a lot. Um, like Notting Hill used to be known as like Rotting Hill and that kind of, and it was like very, very multicultural kind of rough area anyway. And, but by the time my dad stopped working there, it was like every shop was a chain shop, like a clothes store, all saints, uh, gales. Uh, and I do have one poem, which is kind of about that, but doesn't name check Notting Hill. I think I've got a meaning to, to write my response to that. Oh, uh, well, in, in rendering in the poem Lines of Flight, uh, you write, a life should not just be mean. To mean as a poet, assuredly, is to create something that can be taken away and dissected. So whilst writing Rendang, did the meaning of the writing allow you to answer questions that you personally um, asked yourself but didn't have answers for, if you get what I mean? Yeah. Well, that specific poem, uh, that line is riffing on a, a famous Archibald MacLeish poem, which ends with this line, a poem should not mean but be, uh-huh. which I've always taken to mean something along the lines of, kind of show not tell you know the poem should just exist in the world it, it shouldn't have like palpable intentions on the reader that's like the, the Keats line you shouldn't know what the poet's thinking you shouldn't it shouldn't lay bare its commitments um and that's and that, that poem in, in particular is about the torture of political dissidents in Turkey who the, the, so those were people who for them their commitments they were prepared to die for it, it was like it became an existential question for them what they believed you know meaning and being were kind of combined um and i think in a lot of the poems i like i like to kind of foreground meaning you know uh the whole idea that a poem should you should just kind of hold back what you think that a poem can't be composed of thought of ideas it to me seems to foreclose so many possibilities of what you can do within a, within a poem um like a life a life should not just be but mean yeah the life life is about more than just being it's about the meanings that we ascribe to things mm. uh, yeah cool. uh, that's yeah what a what about you do you do you think it, yeah your your work i was doing so you you've you kind of you're, it feels like it has a kind of political commitment to it as well. You've kind of got a range of voices and styles. How do you, how do you, how would you answer your, your question? Um, yeah, uh, I don't actually know how to answer my own question. Um, <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> which is all Um, yeah, it's, it's, as you as you said you you write 
not so much with the intention of sort of laying everything bare, everything, everything out. You want you want the reader to sort of take take what they can from a poem. So you ask the questions and you don't really particularly give them much of the answers. Um and so yeah, um when I'm say writing a poem. Um, I, I don't, uh, I don't tend to sort of go full, full, but like out there with it, you know. I, I don't know if that answered my own question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> um. Okay. Uh, Max. Uh. Before reading Lanny, I found that the boys in Grief is the Thing with Feathers um, sort of had an opportunity to sort of being a bit too similar to Lanny, but um, that's obviously, obviously not the case. The Grief is the Thing with Feather boys are hardened, I thought, with this clouding film of grief, but they obviously show their dad a purer form of love. Um, Lanny, in a sense, borders on magic, adventure, wisdom. So how did you breach sort of the, the child character whilst also breaching the other boundaries and doing it in a completely different flavour? Um, well, the boys in my first book were, were a device, you know, they were designed mm. to find a way to write the sibling relationship as a character itself. Whereas Lanny is um, an absence in, in his own book. Uh, he very rarely speaks and certainly it's not about his language. Um, it very occasionally becomes about his politics and his intuition and his sort of proto-environmentalism and various things like that, but it's never about um, it's never about his linguistic relationship to those around him in the same way that my first book is a game on those terms. So um, what I had to do was try and describe him as accurately as possible um, from everyone else's point of view. Um, and have the idea of him being contested, whether he's innocent, whether he's eccentric, whether he's annoying, whether he's profound, whether he's um, in tune with the infinite or um, um, a pretentious twat. And I wanted that to be mapped out evenly and fairly. Um, but the only way, of course, of doing that is is with the political and uh, linguistic ticks and traits of, of everybody else in the book um, and so that required making a lot more than I used and then taking out what wasn't necessary or taking out what was doing too much of my work or um, so for example the mother when Lanny is gone uh, fetishizes certain physical aspects of him in a way that is irrelevant or meaningless to another person uh, so yeah it was it was kind of like creating this this yeah I mean uh, it, it does have more in common perhaps with the theatre than anything else creating this um this stage set and then working out how compellingly I could communicate the idea of this child um or or ask for the idea of the child to be interrogated by my reader once I'd taken him off stage and just left everybody talking about him um, did you always know that he would be off stage for the 
for the book. For the book yeah. yeah, yeah, that was kind of a core. Yeah, structure. I wrote a poem a few years ago where he it's about a missing child. Mm -hmm. um, but the fundamental difference when I turned it into a novel was that I had dead puppet tooth war. Um, so once I had the idea of of a collaborative voyeurism between reader and village, um, with the, with the with the idea of the mythic character as 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 listener both to history and to the present, then it made the idea of him being gone much easier to to handle in narr in a narrative sense. Mm. Um, so, but part two became a possibility really once I. Otherwise, it would have just been a kind of awful archer's pastiche. Um, <laughs> but once we have what I notionally, at least, once we have the, the kind of the kind of complicity between mythic voyeur and and audience slash reader, then you can do things if you take away the character. I hope um, it requires a certain degree of indulgence on the reader's part. I think, but um, I think that's okay, and I think certainly poems require that as well. Um, most most storytelling form do i think i feel like you accept it pretty quickly that you're not going to meet lanny <laughs> and then but then you get a very rich you get a really rich and full sense of him through these other characters you mean you kind of don't notice basically with very quickly I hope so yeah i hope so and then yeah you do get a little bit of him and then i think that you um i think it's the same way as like the idea that characters in not in the novel are two-dimensional things to be slid on and off um but if the if what you're shown is is telling enough um if, if you're, you know if there's enough nuance in in what you're when in the kind of editorial decisions that have been made about what you see and don't see then then a kind of three-dimensionality will occur naturally for the thinking or feeling reader anyway mm. it's a bit like the suspending of any kind of artifice in in puppetry or, or animation or opera any, anything that has a very um elaborate you know mechanics of display or performance i think then that you, you uh, very early on i mean for me page one is me saying come on this is a guy made of condoms and brambles and barbed wire i'm not asking you to do this literally i'm asking you to go somewhere with me that is beyond the mm -hmm. the flatness of that premise and for some readers that's not going to be interesting <laughs> or, or or you know or worth 12 quid <laughs> i yeah my favorite section, one of my favorite sections, is uh, the bit where Papatooth, uh, dead Papatooth, was giving the, um, the, the, is it the Fanta coat? Fanta lid, yeah. yeah, the Fanta lid, a tour of the the village. I That's my favorite bit. Will, thank you. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really have any any comment. Beyond got, I think if 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 you can give a cameo to a big big corporate soft drink in a book, you should. Yeah, how much how much did you get paid for that from? Money you, money you poets will never even dream of. <laughs> Which is funny because actually my, the advance to my first book was really, really small, obviously, because it was an experimental novel that they thought would sell 60 copies. But they, when, I, when I rang back and went, oh, God, wow. They went, think of it as a poet's advance. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm flattered on behalf of the work. Outraged as a businessman. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, can I ask Jamie can I ask Will a question of, uh, both of you a question about what you're working on next yeah Jamie um I am currently working on a poetry collection about um about movement most probably well not most probably it's 
it's gonna be about trains, which sounds a bit a bit lame. But um yeah, it's 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 a it's a work in progress. I've been I've been reading an awful lot and researching an awful lot about trains. Nice. And I, I like the movement of them. I like how even in their in their movement they sound somewhat iambic or or they have a meter to their movement which I'm I'm vibing with. Nice. So, yeah. Have you read Train Dreams by Dennis Johnson? No, I haven't. I shall I shall put that on the list. It's just a short book, so just a novella. It's about 100 pages long, but it's one of the great, great American novels I've ever read. Incredible. Oh, oh but I'll check that out. I'll make sure to. Well, what about you, Will? Um, at the moment, I'm working on two things. I'm trying to write uh, an essay about, um, essentially about fascism. Um, but the angle I'm trying to work is um, the relationship between dreams and fascism. And I've been trying to find as much firsthand uh, documentation as I can by, by mainly Ita like uh, Italians and uh, Germans in the early part of the 20th century recounting their, their dream life. Hmm. And I'm also maybe gonna write about a few films where, where fascist imagery plays a big part. And I'm not exactly sure what the central argument of it is, but I, I, I've always had this kind of like side interest here. One of the poems in, in Rendang is about this uh, neo-Nazi called Richard Spencer. And I imagine seven dreams that he, he might've had. And it was at a time where there were lots of arguments about platforming and that kind of and that and that kind of thing like we you know we need to you know all this this stuff about needing to debate with nazis and fascists and it's always seemed to me so fundamentally futile to debate with fascists with a fascist or with but i i've never been able to fully articulate why and so reading a lot of psychology and like looking at accounts has been a kind of way of clarifying it but the way the fundamental thing to me about fascism seems to be a denial of an internal life. Um, and which, which kind of manifests in these, in a, in, a, in a form of like outward psychosis. And so to argue with someone on a rational basis about their beliefs when what's going on is so clearly internal is it seems to be like you're, you're kind of like fighting all the wrong battles. And I'm also, I've also been trying to write some poems um, <laughs> as well, which have been going, which has been going not, not as well. Will, have you read a book called um, Male Fantasies by Klaus Chaderlein? That is, that's on my list. Yeah, I've, I've. I, I, that's one of my top 10 books of all time. Wow. Yeah. That's I'm not like, I'm not, I mean, it's a weird book to have as a, I'm not, I'm not probably going to take it to my desert island, but <laughs> like one of the most influential books on my thinking that I've ever read. It's mm. absolutely extraordinary about the about the, the the fantasy of the ego outside the body and yeah uh, and the kind of desire to penetrate the world and 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 how compelling the early fascist um, propaganda was. Yeah, and it's and it's eerie how how similar the rhetoric the, <laughs> the rhetoric is around around it. So that's that, that's an account of these these like kind of marauding bands of 
uh, mercenary soldiers after the First World War in like early 20s Weimar Germany who like went around hunting down uh, communists in uh, in Bavaria and 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 and, and like it's in, and the language they use is just so similar to the kind of like language of like mm. incels. It's all about like hunting down like impure communist women and like to uphold the like this like pure idea of German, you know, a kind of virile yeah. masculine Germany. It's kind of it's an incredible book and it's kind of a keystone for me in my in in, in my feminism way as an, as an explanation of male psychosis, like as an as an explanation of like the military industrial male death drive is just extraordinary i love i love that we've ended up on this and i squarely blame you will yeah did i not warn you that that was going to be eventful i feel like they covered so much ground in that chat and also that will harris was amazingly calm despite the fact that he'd been shut out from his own live event if that was me i would have been flustered all over the place anyway well done to him and thank you to the three of them that's jamie trower max porter and will harris for taking part in the festival next time on the bookbound podcast it's episode six already wow thank you so much for listening to us so far next episode will be holly bourne and intasar kanani They both write YA fiction, that's young adult fiction, i.e. 14 audiences, and they get talking to their host about delving back into the teenage brain. Murky business, that. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please don't keep it to yourself. We would love it if you would help us spread the word by subscribing, rating us, and reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts. The Bookbound podcast team is me, that's Georgie Codd, working with Claire Reed, Felicity Quick and Beatrice Bazell. Our magnificent theme tune is Wonder Under by the Glad Rags, which we found on the Free Music Archive. Have a lovely rest of your day. It's no-